Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Candy. You know, I was driving here this morning and I was thinking this episode that we're about to record is very exciting to me. Mm-hmm. And I was really happy that although it's mid-September, I'm starting to see the first signs of fall. Yes. Because the episode that we're going to record today is very much attuned with the holiday of Halloween. And I like that it, it added some atmosphere for me. Oh, good. Yes. Oh, good. Yes. My family absolutely loves fall and Halloween. I don't know about you, but like, for example, just yesterday, we went to one of the local nurseries and we were buying pumpkins Aww. and hay bale and ears of corn and yeah. all the things. We have a skeleton sitting in a chair <laughs> holding a big pumpkin. Aww. I mean, we are that family. I think mm-hmm. it's because Kirk's birthday is so close to Halloween. What, oh, that is, yeah, that would do it. I remember you saying that before, that he was right around Halloween and he really, really loves it. I love the two weeks of nice weather that we get for fall <laughs> in Kentucky because it's really hot and then it's temperate for those two weeks and we get fooled into going, oh, we're going to have a fall and then it gets cold and wet. <laughs> so we're in that two week window where it's like, oh, yay, lovely. I love Isn't fall. Isn't this beautiful? It's so lovely. Yeah. The crisp air. Yes. yes. It, we're being fooled. It, it's warm during the day and then it's cool at night. It's just perfect temperatures. But I am going to say I do love fall. Mm-hmm. I love autumn and I really do love Halloween and I do love some nice suspenseful scary movies yes, sometimes, which is going to lead right into today's topic because we're going to be talking about the original classic 1978 Halloween. Yes, we are. And yes, actually, are. <laughs> you, you told me off mic. Tell them what you had to do to prepare for this well, today. Well, I am wearing the lovely complimentary Vanity Fair pajamas that they gave us because they're very comforting and cozy. And I'm wearing my, my San Antonio uh, Rainforest Cafe uh, jump, what is this, sweatshirt zipper so I can feel comfortable. And you needed to prepare yourself. I needed to prepare needed myself to... mentally. I needed to be in a good place mentally. I needed to be very comfortable in my body so that my soul can prepare. All right. Let's well, do it. Get, get yourself ready because oh it's Here coming at you. It's coming at me. <sighs> so since you don't really know much yes, about no. this movie. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Like, that is correct. Even, even... I know Jamie Lee Curtis is in okay. it. And I know, is it Michael Myers? Yes, it is. That's the bad guy. And then don't they end up being related in some way? I don't okay. even know. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's it? That's pretty well it. And they've done a billion sequels. Well, they have done quite a few. Yeah. Although, supposedly last year, they ended Lori Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character as Lori Strode, and supposedly they ended her arc because they filmed Halloween Ends, oh. and that was supposed to be the last one. We'll see. All right. Well, well we will see. <laughs> but because you are not familiar, yes. Ashley, I found a little clip. This was actually a 45-second trailer they released uh-huh. when they were trying to prepare people for one of the, the movies that was coming out. Mm-hmm. So this actually, I think, was something they put out in 2012 when one of those movies was about to come out. But I liked it because it's short and kind of concise, but it will catch you 
you up on the basic premise of the movie Halloween. Okay. And I thought it might be fun for okay. our listeners to hear me watch this. I feel you. hot. I'm sweating. <laughs> now, he's back. Oh, gosh. Oh, he's in the closet. Oh. <laughs> the terrifying classic returns to theaters beginning October. Oh gosh. Okay. You can't kill the boogeyman. Oh no. Oh no 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 no. Okay. All right. We'll yeah. Stop and that's there. fun for people. That's fun. <laughs> Gosh, that wasn't even forty-five seconds. That was fast, mm-hmm. but it, it did give you a nice little flavor, didn't it? Mm-hmm. The house looks spooky. Mm-hmm. Yes. The house looks super spooky, and yeah, no, somebody in your closet. They had wire hangers too. Joan Crawford would not have approved. <laughs> well, that wire hanger actually ended up serving Laurie Strode very well. Oh I'm gonna say. I don't think I'm giving a spoiler since this movie came out in you 1978. You spoil all you want to me. Does yeah. she murder him with it or something? She jabs him in the eye. Oh gosh. <laughs> Oh. Right, I'm sorry. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, so oh, let's that go. Would be let's so go. Squishy and hurt. <laughs> it hurt so bad. Okay. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's, though, let's we, we just do got it. a little ahead of ourselves, oh, didn't we? All right. Let's go. So on IMDb, mm-hmm. a fan contributed this summary that I'm about to read to you. The year is 1963, the night Halloween. Police are called to 43 Lambkin Lane only to discover that 15-year-old Judith Myers has been stabbed to death. Oh by her six-year-old brother, Michael. After being institutionalized for 15 years, Myers breaks out on the night before Halloween. No one knows nor wants to find out what will happen on October 31st, 1978, besides Myers' psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis. He knows Michael is coming back to Haddonfield, but by the time the town realizes it, it'll be too late for many people. Well, why didn't he warn them? Oh, he did. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the movie, he is on a mission to try to to stop Michael. He knows something terrible is going to happen, and he keeps he goes to the police. Yeah, he is Nobody definitely. Listens. Well, there are little, there's a little disbelief, but they kind of play along with him. But mm-hmm. Michael just goes in directions they don't anticipate. Can't you say this dude stabbed his sister when he was six? They did. They said he is crazy, but okay. I think again we're maybe jumping around a little bit. Sorry. But I actually that's one of the things I think that makes the movie work is. Is they set it in this small town oh. that has this feeling of such safety and mm-hmm. such security. Mm-hmm. Nothing like this ever happens Leave to us. Leave your door unlocked. Yes. Which is why it, that actually adds such an element to the fear because it's like this seems like the place where you would be safe. Right. But it also means that you have police and different services in the town that are totally unprepared to deal with something like this. They don't know what to do. This has never come their way before. Yeah. yeah. Well, by the way, this is a rated R movie. Oh, you think? Yeah, (laughs) it is rated R. The hanger in the eyeball told me that. (laughs) And there are other things as well. (sighs) But it's also a classic. It's a classic. And we're Mm going to talk about why this is actually such an important movie, especially for the horror genre. But I found so many sources. This is one of those episodes where I did do a deep dive. Mm -hmm. I was everywhere. (laughs) I mean, I was watching clips from Jamie Lee Curtis interviews. I read so many sources, rewatched the movie, all the things. Mm -hmm. But one of the the sources that was very valuable to me is something that I've referenced before. It's the Netflix series called The Movies That Made Us. Oh, yes, yes. I brought it up 
back when we were doing our Back to the Future episode because it always gives a lot of great information because what they do is they grab the actual people involved in those movies mm -hmm. and they they tell everything from their own perspective, from their own like memories, that. and then they intersperse all these pictures and footage. It's yeah. just so interesting. Now, sometimes it is rated R because depending on what... The content of yes, the movie, whatever, maybe? Exactly. Sometimes there might be language or different mm -hmm. things. For example, I think you would definitely call this particular episode PG-13 at least, but it, they are interesting. So on this particular episode of the movies that made us, the one focused on Halloween, they brought in so many people who were part of the crew and and some actors too. In fact, one of the actors who played Michael Myers, we're going to hear about one him. One of the and, actors? Well, yes. Okay. We'll come back to that. Okay. But lots of people right in the thick of it who are talking and one of those gentlemen was a man named Erwin Yablins. He actually was the fella who conceived of the whole idea behind Halloween. He was somebody who worked in the movie industry, mainly as a distributor, although he'd done some other things as well. And here's what he told a reporter for the New York Times back in 1981. Here's his quote. I dreamed up Halloween on an airplane. I was coming back from a film festival in Milan and I was looking for an idea that wouldn't cost money because mm -hmm. I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. I couldn't afford to buy a book or a play and it happened to be Halloween night. The article goes on to say that he worked out the idea of a madman stalking and killing babysitters because everyone has either been a babysitter yeah. or had a babysitter. Yeah. So he or figured, been babysat. Mm -hmm, he figured that the story would be very relatable. But he also said in this interview, it is widely believed that the original title for the movie was going to be the babysitter murders. He said in this interview that that is not true. Okay, but I'm telling you, so many sources said it's the truth. So it's interesting. He was like, I was there. I know what happened. That's not true. I wonder I, where that got started. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to say this. He also commented, thank goodness that wasn't the title because one of the reasons he thinks Halloween has been so iconic, has lasted all these years, has caused all these spinoffs to occur, is because they used the name Halloween. Had they not attached it to the holiday itself, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have had that... Impact. Right, that perseverance. It would have It would have just, you know, kind of gone out of the public consciousness. But now, every single year when Halloween's coming, that movie comes to mind mind because they are associated right. with each other right and he also made a comment he couldn't believe at the time they made the movie that there had been no other movie that had thought to use the title halloween before right. them right yeah so like groundhog's day yeah you know yeah. right it's tied to a holiday <laughs> exactly i'm gonna call him by his first name i'm gonna call him erwin erwin okay. ended up securing funding from a man named mustafa akkad who was listed is still is listed in the credits as the executive producer for the film and then erwin himself also served as an executive producer and then later we'll find out he ends up actually having to distribute the film too. But the first thing that he needed to do after getting some money was to find a director. Irwin recruited John Carpenter. Okay. Who has a connection to us, Ashley. He, he does. He grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Well, John, howdy. I know. <laughs> in his biography, it said that John's father was actually head of the music department at WKU and that John attended WKU himself before going to the USC School of Cinema in Los Angeles. So, John, you and I are fellow Hilltoppers. I'll be reaching out, seeing if you want to come do a little interview for Why not? our podcast. Why since, not? you know, since we're buddies now. That's right. All right. Look for my DM. Okay. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
But anyway, back in 1978, John Carpenter was not a big name yet. He only had, I believe, two other simple kind of, I mean, you know, movies mm-hmm. under his title, but they weren't like big budget studio things. They were they were smaller. And he had not really done anything in the horror genre, but he did sign on to make this movie for $10,000, creative control, Ooh. and 10% of the potential profit. What, what a deal. Right? What a deal. Uh-huh. He also asked, which Irwin commented was kind of unusual. It seemed like he was asking for a lot, but he wanted his name above the title. John Carpenter's Halloween. Exactly. Nice. And he got it. Nice. He got it. It was an independent movie. This was not a big studio film. This was an independent movie. And the budget was only $300,000, which they said even back in 1978, it may sound like a lot, Mm -hmm. but no, they said- No, that's not. It really was very, very small. What they ended up doing was they saved- money any way they could a lot of the crew ended up being very first of all the crew was small but mm-hmm. secondly everybody was very interconnected they started recruiting you know like okay here are some friends that I've worked with at USC I'm gonna get them to help I'm gonna get my wife to come in to do this or mm-hmm. you know they, they it was lots of friends lots of family and one of the people interviewed for the movies that made us said that for most of them they were very young very inexperienced this was their first real movie experience so he phrased it we were young hungry and cheap hey i can identify with that (laughs) (laughs) now one of the really important members of the team was a lady named deborah hill she was john's girlfriend at the time who also was involved in the movie industry she'd already had things in on her resume as well he brought her in as a producer and different people referred to the couple as the heart and soul of the movie because not only did they work as producer and director but john and deborah actually ended up co-writing the story Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And they had to do it in about 10 days. Oh, wow. Everything they did was like on the fly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also identify with that. It's interesting. Again, this is time and time again, we talk about seeing different versions across different sources. One source said that Deborah wrote the first draft and, you know, she's the one who actually got it on paper and everybody agrees she was responsible for really bringing the female characters to life. She was very good at fleshing out Laurie's character and also that friend group, Laurie's friends. She wrote their dialogue. She conveyed their emotions. She's the one who tried to make them real. And then this was actually from the movies that made us. They said that John was given credit for kind of layering in that mythology of, you know, adding that element the of lore. the- Yes, exactly. Mm. That idea of bringing out the nature of evil and how you can't kill it. So he kind of added in some of the suspense elements. Now I went to a different source and they straight up said it was basically equal, that they divided it. They said John John wrote a huge chunk of the first draft, so I'm not sure exactly how it played out, okay. but they are listed as co-writers, okay. and they both had a huge hand in it. So now they've got some money. they got the director, producers, and script. They needed a cast. Do you happen to know, other than Jamie Lee Curtis, anybody else who's in it? Not a drip. Okay. Have you heard of Donald Pleasance? No. Okay. That's okay. All right. Unless I see him, I may have heard of him once I see I him. I bet you do, because he's kind of... You like a lot of classic movies, mm-hmm. and that was his thing. I'm feeling a lot of parallels to Psycho right now, which was Jamie Lee's mom's independent film. Like, Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make Psycho on a really low budget to prove that it could be done, that mm-hmm. a horror movie could be made on a really low budget. And the knife looks like the knives look, the knives look pretty similar, too. Well, you make a good inference because Psycho was one of the big influences mm-hmm. for this film, mm-hmm. and we're going to come back to that a little bit okay, more, cool. too. But no, you've nailed that. Recognizing that this indie film would have 
have a whole lot more credibility if they could add some star power to sure. it. They wanted a name actor. Despite the fact that their budget was small, they said, we're going to dedicate a little bit of money to trying to get somebody, yeah. Yeah. somebody who's got some credibility out there in this film. They originally wanted Christopher Lee, but mm, he That would have been it. a good choice. Mm-hmm. For yeah. what part? This is Dr. Samuel Lewis. Oh, the one that's the warning psychi- everybody? Yes, okay. the psychiatrist who had worked with Michael Myers and is trying to basically stop him. Well, he turned it down, so they went to British actor Donald Pleasance. Donald was not, I don't think, a lead actor, but he was an acclaimed kind of character, character actor. actor. Mm-hmm. Sure. He'd been in The Great Escape. He was in the James Bond film You Only Live Twice. He was in The Greatest Story Ever Told. So he did have some star power. Yeah. People knew him. And he agreed to do the work for $20,000 for five days of shooting. Ooh. Yeah. Now, he wasn't happy to do it. He took the, I guess he took the money and, and you know, he liked the idea of five days and $20,000. I as, as I would as well. But he Donald. wasn't a huge fan of the movie itself. In fact, I saw... Even after it was done? I don't know. He came back and did at least one sequel. And I, I want to say it might have been more than one. So he liked it well enough that he returned. I suspect once it started getting some critical praise, Acclaim. then mm-hmm. he was okay with it. Mm-hmm. But at this time, I even saw a little clip where he was speaking in an interview and he was basically criticizing the script saying it was I feel like it's a bit overwritten so he did not seem happy and mm-hmm. a few of these people who were on the crew in the production team they shared that he didn't seem happy mm. that he at that time he was I believe an alcoholic mm. I, I, I looked it up and it said he did have a problem with drinking for a while but he later kind of overcame that well, that's good but they said that during this time he was doing a lot of drinking and they shared one example they said there's a really important scene actually when we realize that Michael has escaped and it's a very creepy scene Okay. okay okay And what happens is Dr. Samuel Loomis, which is Donald Pleasant's character, he is in a car with a nurse and they are driving up and they see all these people milling around, mm-hmm. patients like wearing mm-hmm. these gowns. And of course mm-hmm. it's dark and it's creepy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Samuel Loomis, the doctor, he jumps out and he's running to go find out what's going on. And the nurse is alone in the car. Oh gosh. And she no. gets... Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> she gets dispatched. Well, she actually makes it. Oh, good. But she gets attacked by Michael. He he was in the trunk the whole time. Well, he comes from above the car, no. in through the window. Mm. Yes. And so on this night, this was a huge, very important scene. Mm-hmm. One of the crew members said it was one of the hardest scenes to, to do because you've got a car moving. You've got people milling yeah. around. It's night. All the things. You've got yeah, an attack. Yeah. But apparently Donald Pleasance had, had something like two bottles of red wine that night, and they were very concerned that he was going to be able to pull off the dialogue and all the physical action that they needed from him he managed to do it they said he came through particular person who was speaking on camera gave john carpenter credit for being a young director who still knew how to handle challenging scenes and situations even when it involved you know this name actor but they managed to do it a fun little side note is michael is coming down from one side and the window is blocking him from getting to the nurse and he breaks the window and they said he was having the actor who was playing him was having trouble breaking it so they taped using flesh colored tape a wrench to the inside of the hand uh-huh. so, so that he smack could smash it. the window yeah. and this guy pointed out that if you look really closely you can see the wrench oh, on the inside of the hand even today it's there that's donald pleasance his character dr sam loomis was named after a character from alfred hitchcock's psycho nice. that that was another one another of those tie-in. little nods mm-hmm. yes and as you've already said janet lee was 
in Psycho. That is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. So that brings us to Jamie Lee. Irwin said he immediately wanted to cast her, not because because of of her talent, because of who she was. Yep, yep. Yep, 100%. The fact that she was Janet Lee's daughter and that her dad was Tony Curtis, that helped her get this role. Jamie Lee was only 19 at the time. I would have thought that would have been a big enough name just on the this is who this is, guys. Yeah, I mean, no, that's it. That's what they did. They they Well, you said they were looking for a name to put in the the film. Oh, and not worrying about Donald Pleasance, Mm -hmm. you mean? Mm -hmm. No. Well, she by all accounts, was delightful. Oh, good. They said that she was, they used words like charming, polite. Tommy Wallace, who ended up working on the film in many capacities, but two of his main titles were film editor and production designer. He described her as being something of a Girl Scout next door. He said she would like help the crew carry things Mm -hmm. when she wasn't acting. Mm -hmm. Everybody loved her. And I really like that because Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you that if you see this movie, you love Laurie Strode. They did such a great job of developing her character. Making you, her empathetic you and vulnerable. Are, yes. Well, but also strong and also so caring. She's the one who has this really strong moral compass. Mm. She's babysitting the kids and her friends are kind of like, ugh, babysitting. And mm-hmm. she's being so kind to these children. I mean, she's just, she just comes across as a truly wonderful human being. Good. Yeah. So it made me happy to know that Jamie Lee Curtis acted the same way in real that life. That she was that way in real life. Yeah. PJ Souls played one of Lori's friends, the girl named Linda, and she was recruited because she had played a small role in Carrie. So they were excited to get her into the film because of that. And then Lori's other friend was named Annie. Nancy Loomis played Annie. Nancy was actually married to Tommy Wallace, the fella I just referenced a second ago, the one who worked as a film editor and a production designer. Okay. Okay. She did this role, but she also helped out in some other ways when she wasn't acting. And then I'll mention just one other cast member. That was Kyle Richards. She is the person who played one of the children, Lindsay, somebody that Lori babysits during the movie. She is a star of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh. So as for Michael Myers, nobody was cast to play that role. Did they just take turns? It was so interesting to me. In the script, his name was rarely used. Most Uh of the time, instead of saying Michael Myers, they would refer to him as The Shape. He would be a shape that would be standing here watching or a shape that would appear to come after somebody. He was the shape. So they did not cast anyone for that role. But then as they started to film, suddenly they you would... need a person. We need somebody to go stand here, you know, behind the laundry. Uh. And one of John Carpenter's friends was a man named Nick Castle. He had gone to USC film school with John and he had some free time. And it was ex- <laughs> it was exciting that John was filming a movie. Like yeah. they were, this was like a big deal to everybody. Like yeah. the first real movie anybody had kind of seen in action so he had asked John hey can I hang out on the set sometimes just to kind of watch and John said sure well they go on and as John would notice we need somebody to stand over there he'd be like hey Nick here (laughs) put this on you go stand that's funny and so Nick Castle basically fell into the role role and ended up bringing Michael Myers to life he gave some quotes on this making of the movies show that I was watching and it was really cute because he said they never had a single conference about motivation they didn't talk about characterization stand here and look creepy literally literally he said it would be walk towards the camera stop when you get here Uh and he shared that there was one moment 
it was after a murder had occurred and he said John told him now tilt your head and he tilted his head and he said it was not until he was watching the dailies later that he said Michael Myers is admiring his work oh he's, gosh. Lo- he's looking at what he's done and he's admiring John it. said this no that was that was Nick Nick's as the actor that, yeah, realizing that when happening? he tilted his head that was what it was supposed to be representing oh. and he said that helped him basically to kind of start well first it made him realize just do whatever John tells you right 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 but also it started to help him see so does he play Mike Myers from now on he played Michael Myers throughout the entire movie except for two places okay the closet scene they had the louvered closet they were on such a tight budget that they knew they had to get it in one take because Uh. they did not have the money to get a new closet door oh I guess he tears it up he oh yeah he rips through the closet Uh. coming after Jamie Lee Uh. Curtis's character so Tommy Wallace (laughs) the same guy I've now mentioned several times he said he knew he would be really angry if they didn't get it in one take he decided he was going to put the mask on himself and he was going to do that scene so that if it went wrong he could only blame himself very smart so he was Michael Myers in that scene the third person who actually ends up playing Michael Myers had to be brought in because of the physical demands of the final sequence of the film so the tearing off of the closet wasn't physical it was it was physical but the last sequence involves Michael Myers having to he's shot and he falls off a second story balcony because basically what ends up happening is we end with Lori being attacked by Michael Myers you think that this might be the end for her but then Dr. Loomis comes in Saves the day. Saves the day. Fires at Michael. She rips his mask off briefly and we get to see his face. And then he ends up going over the balcony and he falls. And then, spoiler alert from 45 years ago, are you aware that Michael kind of disappears? Do you know? Have you heard that? Oh, no. <laughs> What do you mean? Do you mean dematerializes or no, 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 oh, no, okay. no, no, no? He just he just gets up and scampers off. And we don't know, <laughs> and we don't know from whence parts he is now. No, oh, okay, okay. No, actually, what happened was they very intentionally decided that they wanted him to be gone because they knew that it would just be terrifying. It would just add a whole new element of terror. Because what happens mm-hmm. is Doctor Loomis, there's kind of that pause where they're all like, "Oh goodness, it's over," right? Mm-hmm. And then they show us from Doctor Loomis's point of view as he moves towards that window and he's going to look down Mm -hmm. and you're expecting to see Michael's body laying there but Michael is gone and I saw where this was an intentional choice because they wanted to scare the audience they wanted the audience to leave the film thinking Michael could be out out here yeah Yeah, yeah. he is like he was not you can't kill evil Mm. he's still on the loose he could be anywhere it was just that idea of the terror is still on the loose. Now, did they, was it also for a potential sequel? I don't think so because it's interesting. John Carpenter ended up having a hand in writing the sequel, Mm -hmm. but what I saw was that he did not enjoy it and he actually had said different times that he didn't think Halloween had the material, had the content for a sequel. So I I think it was more about just it was a kind of a business decision for him. So I don't think, I don't think he necessarily set up the ending for a sequel, but because he thought it would have the most impact as being scary yes its own story but going back to what we were saying because that last sequence was so physical they decided to bring in an actual stunt man just for that last little piece the fella they hired was james winburn and he's the guy who played michael myers in the final sequence while the person who was michael myers when unmasked was actually a different fella i guess technically there were four there is a place where Lori 
rips the mask off Michael Myers just briefly to see what he looks like, his real face. Yeah. And for that scene, they actually paid an actor named Tony Moran, who would go on later to do guest spots in TV shows like The Waltons and Chips. But he received $250 for one day's work doing one single shot for this Halloween movie. Wow. All they had to do is rip off that mask and you see him for just a split second. And that's it. That's it. We're in the wrong lane of work. I know. Probably helped him get started. Very nice. Yeah. Well, we have made it through all of the casting that we're going to discuss. There, mm-hmm. Of course, there were other people involved, but I just wanted to highlight you know, a few. Before we go on to talk more about the filming, why don't we take a short break? Let's do it. You know what's scary? Michael Myers following you home. You know what's not scary? You following us on social media. We have accounts on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Pinterest, X, formerly known as Twitter, and YouTube. In fact, YouTube is where you can not only listen to our podcast, but also view the videotaped recordings of several special episodes, such as last week's 1916 Jersey Shore Shark Attacks, our episode on Robin Williams, the five W's, and several of our interview episodes, including Tommy Dew, Eric Archilla, and Hannah from Chili Bee ASMR. So be sure to search Scandal Water Podcast on your social media of choice. And don't forget to rate and subscribe because you're the only type of followers we want this Halloween season. And we are back. It's interesting. I saw where one source, actually a couple of sources, said that the movie was filmed in something like 20 to 22 days. But I saw Jamie Lee Curtis in three separate interviews say 17 days. Whoa. 17 days. That's all they took to shoot this movie. Regardless, they did it in less than three weeks. Right. Yeah. It was supposed to take place in the fall, of course, specifically on Halloween night. But they were shooting it in May in California. And as you might predict, there that, is no fall. that caused a few problems. One of those was that they couldn't find very many pumpkins. <laughs> they managed to round up two to three, and they kept reusing Aww. those same pumpkins. But one of them gets crushed by a little boy, a Tommy, the boy who gets babysat in one of the opening scenes. So that one was gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have one pumpkin to strategically place. Well, what ended up happening, Tommy Wallace shared that they figured out that there are some South American gourds that look very similar in size and shape, except that they're very green. So they, they just paint them? Oh, yes. They did. Awesome. Yes, they did. Another very famous strategy they used that a lot of people know about was they needed leaves. They wanted to make it look like fall. Mm -hmm. So they bought dozens of bags of fake leaves and they had to paint them, you know, to make them look fallish. And then they would have to scatter them around and then... And then collect them up again? Oh, yes. Yes. Guys. Yes. That is another very famous story about trying to make it look like Halloween. Although a fun thing is no matter where you look, every trivia source that you find will always point out everything else looks so springish you see green leaves everywhere if you look really carefully at one point you can see a little bit of a palm tree (laughs) so (laughs) they did the best they could but but it was an independent film on a tight budget yes the setting of the movie is Haddonfield Illinois named after Deborah Hill's hometown of Haddonfield New Jersey and I'm gonna hit this again because it's so important the setting was huge this is what I think 
and it's definitely what a lot of the sources seem to think, helped to make the movie so impactful. The fact that it was set up as an any town USA. Middle America. That, yes, this could be you. Mm -hmm. This is this is a place where people should feel safe. Mm -hmm. This is a place where it could be you. They wanted to really make the fear personal. A Vulture article brought out another insight that I had never thought of. This one hit me. So quoting from the Vulture article, the notion of a random psychopath mass murdering strangers was particularly timely in the late 1970s, an era oh. that saw the first proliferation of serial killers. Yeah. Son of Sam, Ted yeah. Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the Hillside Strangler. Most horror movies were still hung up on supernatural scares oh. of the exorcist and omen variety. Yet here was a film that underscored the terrifying notion that anyone could be a victim anywhere, anytime. That's insightful. It's like the first true crime movie. Kind yes. Of. Yes. In a yeah. way, I think so. Yeah. I feel like this was a huge element behind its success and mm -hmm. the fact that it resonated with people mm -hmm. so personally and so mm -hmm. deeply. Mm -hmm. I think other people would agree with me as well, but Candy's editorializing for just a moment. I think another key reason is that they did such a beautiful job with Laurie Strode. Mm. She is just such a strong character. She is 17 years old in the movie in real life of course she's 19 but the character is 17 years old and they characterized her as being smart dependable shy mm -hmm. lonely mm -hmm. she's the girl next door incredibly as we already said sweet to the children in her care and they brought out that a lot of times in this era of the 1970s they were using more female protagonists but sometimes it was kind of a objectified mm -hmm. or ex mm -hmm. you know a little bit maybe sometimes more of damsel exploitation in distress kind of thing well or even you know like the sexy young girl who gotcha. gets murdered. Gotcha. Yeah. But this was a case where they were really creating an incredibly likable, sympathetic, powerful female protagonist. And they just made her so real. In fact, they, they made a point. They dressed her like a normal teen. According to Mental Floss, an, an article they did, because of the budget, pretty much everybody had to provide their own wardrobe mm -hmm. anyway because mm -hmm. they couldn't afford it. But they pointed out specifically that Jamie Lee Curtis bought her costumes at JCPenney and she managed to do it all for less than a hundred dollars nice jamie lee yeah very much the girl next door how long does this movie take place over is it over a day over a week what's it's the time basically line? it's less than 24 hours okay so that would yeah. help with the costume budget yes absolutely yeah. yeah you are going to love this part ashley and you've already alluded to it okay okay i held back until we got to this point but something they did from the very beginning was they made a point to focus on the suspense at Aspect. Remember Erwin Yablins, the fellow I mentioned in the beginning, the fellow who created the whole idea and yeah. then found the money to make yeah. the movie possible? He shared that right from the get-go, when he first recruited John Carpenter as the director, he sat down with John and he told him, John, <laughs> I grew up loving radio horror shows. Oh, yeah. I, you know, he's telling them that he himself loved what he called theater of the mind. Yes. He wanted this movie to play like that. He didn't want blood and gore. He wanted suspense. He said, these are some quotes directly from him in that interview. He wanted his viewers to be frightened, not repulsed. Oh, good. And he said, this was a quote I loved, drag their eyes to the right and scare them on the left. Oh. And that's what John did. Several members of the crew talked about 
how little blood there, they couldn't believe how little blood there was in a horror movie like this. Because again, at this time, you're seeing a lot of other movies that are like The Exorcist, like gore was the thing, shock was the thing. But they said John focused on creating more of a Hitchcock type suspense. Yes. One man straight up said it was very much like Psycho. You never see the knife hit Janet Lee in Psycho. And just to give an example, a parallel example, when Michael Myers stabs Laurie's arm at one point in Halloween, you see the knife slice down. You see her shirt rip in that spot. Not an ounce of blood. Interesting. No gore at all. Mm. But you're terrified. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely terrified. And then the man whose title was second assistant camera, he shared a different example that I thought was kind of fun. Towards the end of the movie, when Michael is supposed to have been killed, of course, we all know he's not. But Jamie Lee is standing there at the top of the stairs as her character, Lori Strode. And there's a dark, shadowy area right beside her. And so John said, how can we make the character of Michael Myers appear? He wanted the suspense. And so what this crew decided was they used a dimmer on Michael Myers' face. And then they slowly brought it up so that his face would just kind of appear out of the darkness. And I just love this behind the scenes type of thing. They said they were going for the effect of the audience feeling like their eyes were slowly adjusting to to the the darkness. And then all of a sudden there his face was. And I have to pause there because I cannot believe that I have skipped this and not told you yet. What? The mask. I have to talk oh. about the mask, which have you heard this? I feel like this is the most famous story that probably everybody has heard. Do you know how they got the mask? No. I'm excited okay. that I get to share this with <laughs> I you. I, I, I feel like this is the one story about Halloween that everybody knows. Okay. So what happened was they needed the mask for the shape or Michael Myers. And all that had been written in the script was that he was supposed to look blank faced. Oh. Okay. Okay, the mask was supposed to just kind of have this blank look. So Tommy Wallace was the one tasked with the job of finding the mask. So he went to a store on Hollywood Boulevard. One source said it was a toy store. One said it was a magic store. But regardless, they had a display of masks. And they had Nixon, Spock, all these different face masks just kind of on display. And he saw one for Captain Kirk. No. And he thought, you know what? That looks a little blank faced. So he grabbed that one. And his second choice was one of Emmett Kelly, the sad sack clown, like that hobo clown. Yeah. He grabbed one of those. Yeah. And he took them back and he was going to basically kind of model them for Uh the rest of his team so they could pick, you know, do either of these work? If they do, which one do you like better? That kind of thing. So he doctored them up a little bit. They actually did like the Emmett Kelly clown face. They thought that that was pretty creepy, that that could have worked. But here's what he did to the Captain Kirk mask before he came out in it. He cut around the eye holes to make them open you know, bigger. Kind of, uh, bigger and more uh-huh. open. He shaved off the eyebrows, shaved off the sideburns. He painted the face. He called it appliance white and he made the hair dark. He like darkened the hair. And he said that when he came out in that mask, he said it was a visceral reaction oh. from the group. He, he, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not using his exact wording, but he said it was like, it was like you could feel it in the room. Like they all were like, they were like, we have a movie. Like this, wow. this is scary we have a movie like they all felt it it was like this energy in the room like yeah. oh wow 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 yeah I'm so glad I got I got yeah, the no story idea. in Captain I can't believe Kirk. I skipped that so but what we were talking about was yes. how John Carpenter created suspense okay? yes yes now in addition to using some of those Hitchcock type techniques, techniques. Mm-hmm. something else he did was he used technology very strategically
strategically. Again, they only had around $300,000 to work with, but John Carpenter insisted that they dedicate about 70000 of it to Panavision equipment, the most important, probably the most expensive piece of it being something called the Panaglide. And the Panaglide was this very new technology that would allow the camera to move freely and do these really long, smooth oh. shots. This was pretty progressive for 1978. In fact, Halloween was among the very first films to ever use the Panaglide. And if you watch the movie, the very first opening scene where it's very, very creepy, Ashley, but it's where you see from the perspective of the little boy, he goes in and where he murders his sister, Judith Judith Myers. Okay. They use that long shot. Yeah. It was actually the very last shot they filmed. It was the last scene of their entire movie. They saved it to the end because it was such an important and kind of tricky shot for them. Mm -hmm. But it's the first shot of the movie. But what they did was they show from, you don't even know it's a kid, of course, at this point. You just see a perspective of somebody uh walking up to this house. They approach it. They look in a window. You see him enter. You see him go into the kitchen. They pick up a knife. They start to go upstairs. But you find out later. Yes. But he goes up the stairs. And it was so interesting because they said they're going for this massively, they called it epic, this epic shot that's so important in setting Mm -hmm. the stage for this entire Mm -hmm. movie. And their technology was great, but it would only go like four minutes at a time. Oh. And so Deborah Hill was the one who came up with the idea of about the time that they were running out of film uh-huh. you see from the perspective again of the person who's walking who we now you know we know is Michael Myers he reaches down he picks up a mask and he puts it on so now it allowed them to cut the film and start basically kind of a new loop but it looks as though the same shot keeps going because because that's he... also kind of Hitchcock inspired because he shot rope as one continuous take but he ah. couldn't so he had to I think he cut it in a couple places one is when they go down to the there's a trunk and they open the trunk and I think they restarted it so that's another yes long take inspiration yes and it's it's very powerful mm. it's very I mean it's very disturbing mm-hmm. because again as you're watching that at the beginning of the movie you have no idea whose point of view you're in Ooh. and then you see him murder his sister and then when he comes out you see it's a little kid you see it's this yes his parents walk up to him and he's holding this knife and they pull up his mask and here's this child who's just done this awful, awful thing. Which of course sets you up for understanding Michael Myers is evil and maniacal. Like like there ain't no helping him. Right, exactly, exactly. So one last little comment about John Carpenter here though, since we're talking about his techniques for creating suspense. Jamie Lee Curtis has been quoted as saying, John is such an interesting guy. He's sort of a gentleman. He says darling a lot. My experience with him was that he was quiet and very focused on what he needed. The movie was made very quickly. There wasn't a lot of hanging around. There wasn't a lot of talking. There was a lot of working. I like that. I do like that, John Carpenter. Yeah. Well, and he continues to work because if you're keeping score, you've probably registered that John Carpenter had to act as both writer and director of the movie, Mm -hmm. but we have not yet discussed the other very important thing that he did. Editor? No, the other guy did editing. Tommy did editing, right? Here we go. After the editing had been completed, but before they had sound effects and a soundtrack, Uh John took the film to a movie executive Oh, distribution. Well, hang on. He wanted to get some feedback. And the exec 
was not at all impressed. They didn't... never are. They never are. Well, but here's the interesting part. This person wasn't scared, didn't really, just was not impressed. So John decided he would try to do something about that through his use of music. 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 John has a whole background in music. And remember, his dad was the music director at WKU. Or... Oh, and yes. John, did he I... do the score? He did. Wow. Wow. Yes, Dude. He did. He did it in three days John. because he told Fangoria at one point, quote, I was the fastest and cheapest I could get. He composed it. He created it. And he, he did have a little assistance. There was a man named Dan Wyman who served as a creative consultant. But basically, John did it all. And what made it stand out more was that he used synthesizers. Mm. Very few additional instruments, but a lot of synthesizer, which was very, very unusual for the time. He was groundbreaking with that. So the music, of course, turned out to be iconic. And according to a Screen Rant article I saw, they said it helped to save the movie. And kind of like Jaws. Yes. Jaws yes. made it way more spooky. Yes. And on top of that, they give him credit for changing the way music was used in films because here's a quote from them. The soundtrack proved to be highly influential, inspiring an entire decade of synth-composed thrillers and action films. Interesting. Yeah. But also interesting was in the credits, if you look on the end of the movie, he didn't give himself credit by name. He actually wrote it as the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. Otherwise known as me. As me. Or John Carpenter. So response to the movie. When it was time to distribute, none of the major studios were willing to take it on. Of and course. that is why you predicted it. Irwin and his company, Compass, decided we'll just we'll self-distribute. Self yes, we will. And of course, it was it was very risky at this yeah, time. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. But it paid off for them. They released the movie on October 27th, 1978. Ooh, very smart to release it at Halloween. Yes, 100%. And here is a quote from that same Vulture article that talks about how it started. After that barely in time for Halloween debut in Kansas City, the film quickly expanded to Chicago, then New York, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia, and then into smaller markets, even though the title holiday had long passed. Ah. Tickets started selling and wouldn't stop, thanks to a combination of smart marketing, its iconic poster image of a giant knife and a sinister jack-o'-lantern was an all-timer, stellar word of mouth, and surprisingly positive reviews. Well, not all of them. And the article goes on to say that at first some of the reviews were not so great, but as all of this momentum was building and the fans were loving it, a lot of positive reviews then did ah, start coming out. Gotcha. So I think a vast majority of the critics ended up giving their approval. This movie continued to play for months. Wow. Months wow. after its release. By the time they were ready to release Halloween 2, which did not occur until October of 1981, the first movie had grossed $47 million between its in initial run and like different re-releases uh -huh. over the years, all the things. And of course, just to make that clear, they put it on TV in October of 1981 as a promo thing oh. because of the release of the sequel. Gotcha. So they correlated those two things. Ultimately, Halloween, 1978's version, grossed over 70 million and was the most profitable independent film of all time until 1999's The Blair, Blair Witch, Witch Project. Yep. yep. Man. Yes. So a few last thoughts to kind of bring this to a close. So why was it so successful? I think we've already hit on this. We've talked about the suspense. We've talked about the score. The fact that they attached it to Halloween mm -hmm. was another point that, that people brought out. And so many people do think that creating a strong female protagonist was important.
important. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Lori Strode, has been referred to as the ultimate final girl. What's a final girl? Oh. Like the final one to survive? Like, yes. Like, oh. it's kind of a whole, it's a whole gimmick in scary oh. movies. Like, the final girl, the, the, final one who ma- the one who makes it. Oh, yes. the specifically the final girl? It's not just yeah. the oh, Yes, it's funny. a thing. Yes. And so she has been called the ultimate final girl. She nice. has been called the scream queen. You know, the, the ultimate scream queen. So but Does her, she scream a lot in the movie, I assume? What? Yes. Okay. But she's so powerful. She's she's not a victim mm. you know she mm-hmm. refuses to to let herself be a victim and so i'm gonna jump back then because you you mentioned closet scene and the yeah. wire hangers yeah i saw jamie lee curtis speak about that how proud she was how of Lori. she was talking about the character like she was a real person she right. said i was so proud of Lori. she goes i don't know what i would have done sitting in a closet <laughs> with some a maniac trying to yeah. like break in and kill me she said how smart of Lori to reach up and grab a wire hanger yeah. and figure out a way to defend use herself a, and use yeah, it as a weapon yeah exactly and one other thought about why it's been so successful the crew was small they were young they were inexperienced but several sources pointed out they were also very talented they and resourceful yes they had very artistic elements that they were able to put into this movie which is another reason why it's been long lasting so for its impact a people magazine article said that halloween is one of horror's longest running franchises it has spawned 13 movies in total 13 Mm -hmm. The most recent of which we've already referenced, Halloween Ends, Uh which came out in October of 2022, which was almost 44 years after the original Halloween came out. What was the story? Is he just still stalking this one particular woman? Mm -hmm. He's now, now it's personal? Yes. Yes. 100%. Well, I mean. Were they related? Was that her brother or what? Okay. (laughs) This is actually confusing and I think, I think a little controversial. Okay. Okay. We ended up actually watching Halloween Uh 2, you know kind of going I told you I went down a little bit of a rabbit trail and in the sequel they clearly establish that they are related that they're siblings that basically they took Lori somebody adopted Lori after you know the tragedy the murder in her family Mm -hmm. and so that's there's this whole relationship and that's part of his motivation for for coming after her okay but when they decided in 2018 to basically create this new trilogy Mm -hmm. Which I don't know if there's a name for it, but it basically the three movies associated with it are Halloween from 2018 to Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Okay. They decided to basically negate that previous storyline. They pick up as though that first movie is a direct sequel to the 1978 film and they, they just Halloween yeah, too. They just yes, they just remove the entire sibling storyline. Was Jamie Lee in all thirteen? films no okay she was not in all 13 but she's been in a number of them okay okay yeah she wasn't i mean she was in the second one when they established the sibling storyline okay yeah so back to the point we were talking about its impact so there have been all of these sequels including basically a reboot (laughs) yeah Yeah, i guess we would call it and a parade magazine article that actually came out just this week had a quote that i thought was interesting it said upon its release 45 years ago in 1978 john carpenter's nerve-frying thriller became the most successful independent movie of all time, setting the bar for modern horror while influencing young filmmakers for generations to come. So it talked about how it changed the whole genre. Mm -hmm. Like filmmakers, in fact, several filmmakers on camera said he influenced me. Like that, Mm -hmm. this movie influenced me. Mm 
me as a director. And the article goes on to point out that John Carpenter's style that he used has played out in things like, for example, Stranger Things. You can see the influence in something as modern as Stranger Things. True. Yeah. On a personal level, it, of course, just launched all these people who were you know involved with this movie. John Carpenter forever would then be associated with the horror genre, and he just has become something of a horror legend. So he skyrocketed in fame. It also made such a difference for Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. I was listening. I've been really caught up in this. So even if I, as I was driving here, I was listening to an interview that Jamie Lee Curtis did on a talk show. And she said that being cast as Laurie Strode changed her life. She said, I don't think I would be, I wouldn't have had the career that I have had. I don't know that I'd be the person that I am. Wow. She said it changed her life. Wow. It did catapult her to stardom. She, of course, made all the Halloween movies, but she also made movies like True Lies and Freaky Friday. And she, Knives Out. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yes. She cried. I mean, she it was very emotional when she made Halloween Ends. She did a lot of interviews talking about how hard it was mm. to say goodbye to this character Aww. because she loved her so much and she was so connected to, to the franchise, to the character, to all of it. But here is a quote that I really enjoyed. She said, I have finally figured it out after 44 years. Laurie Strode represented everybody's sister, mm. everybody's friend, her beautiful innocence and intelligence and her ability in the moment to never give up. And so for me, the legacy is that I never give up. And even if Jamie has given up, Laurie didn't. Mm. And because of that, people around the world look to me as someone who's a survivor and who's faced adversity and has kept going. Oh, that's nice. It is really nice. Armchair psychologist. So... That's the end of the episode. And I know that this is hard for you because you haven't actually seen the movie. I am just going to kind of open the door to let you offer any thoughts that you might have. And then I might chime in with a few as well. Well, I like the fact, first of all, I like the fact that he's a local boy. That's that's mm-hmm. lovely. John yeah. Carpenter is a yes. local guy. And that's probably why he calls people darling. That sounds very <laughs> local for me. And I like the all the nods to Hitchcock. I appreciate his art. I appreciate his work. I probably will still not ever, ever, watch, ever it. watch it. But that is nothing against you personally, John Carpenter. I think you are probably a lovely man. I just get really, really scared. And I don't want to do that to myself. Why would I? Why would, why you? would right. I? If yes. you don't enjoy it, why would you? Yes. But I can appreciate everything that he did and I really identified with the low budget group of friends scrappy making a movie together mm-hmm. yeah I yeah really like it's that. a really it's a it's an underdog story mm-hmm, I like that yeah, and underdog very... stories are always rewarding especially they when they win in the end you know yeah I agree I held back one quote because it struck me so many of the things that it talked about in the episode I kept going yes yes because this is a movie this is not a five-star movie you know it's not you can mm-hmm. see the elements mm-hmm. where it's an independent movie or where but the acting's not solid really or tried. Yeah. Yeah, but but also, but there were so many great things about it. And I think it does touch you on a very personal level. You are caught up in it. This Mm -hmm. is one of those first movies, I think, where people were talking out loud in a theater where they Mm. were like yelling back, you know, they don't go in there. Yes. In fact, there was a cute story now that I'm I'm reminding myself of this. It was Irwin who told it. He said that when they were watching it two or three times during the movie, Jamie Lee, her character, Laurie Strode, thinks that she's now killed Michael and she drops the knife. Don't do that. Jimmy. And Erwin said it was like the third time she had dropped the knife and somebody from the theater yelled out, this is during the screening, well, you deserve to die. <laughs> but Jamie Lee said herself, she was talking about 
actually going up to John Carpenter saying, why would she drop the knife? Why would she do Why this? would she drop the knife? And she kept going, she wouldn't. She wouldn't drop the knife. And she said, John kept trying to like talk her through it. And finally he looked at her and he said, Jamie, if you want the movie to end and if you want Michael <laughs> to have a chance to come back and scare everybody, you've, you've got to drop the yeah. knife. So, yeah. so yeah. Your she, motivation is because I said so. <laughs> yes. That's your motivation. Yes. But something else that I had not yet registered was that it was a mystery. There was a quote from the same parade article that said, one of the greatest strengths of the original Halloween is how much goes unexplained. Mm. Michael Myers is evil. He is a psychopath. He kills people. And on this night, he set his sights on an ordinary American town. That's it. We know nothing else about him. We barely even see his face. And that's what makes him frightening. If anything, one can read Halloween as simply a metaphor for the unfortunate truth that there is evil in the world and sometimes bad things happen to good people. That's the truth. I thought that was so insightful. I think that really it is that, oh, that layer of mythology, that idea of the unknown, Mm -hmm. the mystery, the fact that you feel Mm -hmm. like you're at risk, that is why this resonates. That and the fact that we identify so much with Lori. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we root for her so hard. Well, I'm glad she wins in the end. Is she okay in the last one? Does she make it through? I have not yet seen the last one, but I'm going to say she makes it. Okay, good. I hope so. Because (laughs) when she said say goodbye to the character, I thought, oh no. No, I'm, I'm hoping that she finally dispatched Michael for good. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well... I think we need to cheers Jamie Lee Curtis. Let's do I mean, there's so many people, obviously, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheers Jamie. Raise Lee a glass Curtis. to Jamie Lee Curtis. Good job, Jamie. Good job. Goodbye, Lori. Cheers to you, Jamie. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.